0: Hello, I'm Sophie Rideout, and this is Policy Talks.
1: In this episode, I sit with Dr. Oksana Huss. We discuss Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the presence of political corruption, and the role of local authorities, open governance, and political organizations in this crisis. Dr. Oksana Huss is a researcher in the BIT-ACT Research Project at the University of Bologna, Italy and lecturer at the Anti-Corruption Research and Education Centre in Ukraine. Her areas of expertise cover anti-corruption and social movements, as well as open government and digital technologies. Oksana obtained her doctoral degree at the Institute for Development and Peace in Germany and held several research fellowships in Canada, France, the Netherlands and Sweden. She consulted international organizations such as the Council of Europe, EU, UNESCO, and UNODC. Oksana is a co-founder of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and author of the book How Corruption and Anti-Corruption Policies Sustain Hybrid Regimes, Strategies of Political Domination Under Ukraine's Presidents in 1994 to 2014.
0: Thank you so much for being here with us, Dr. Oksana. Welcome to the show. A brief reminder to our followers and listeners that all opinions discussed here today are reflective of the individual person expressing them and do not reflect the views of the interviewer, iAffairs Canada, the Canadian Foreign Policy Journal, or the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. Now, let's dive into the show. We're so excited to have you, Oksana. To start off, can you please tell us about your research and your field of study?
2: Sure. Uh, I'm working on a topic of political corruption. So I'm researching corruption for already 10 years. And uh, right now I'm working in an international uh, research project funded by European Research Council. And we are looking at the technologies in which role they play in countering corruption, especially by civil society actors. social movements, how do they create technologies and how do they use it to counteract corruption. And from this background, I moved towards open government topic and citizen engagement as the opposite to corruption because I did my research on Ukraine a lot and also questioned politicization of anti-corruption, that this might be used as a tool and have some unintended impact. And this is how I came around the topic of citizen engagement and now under conditions of war uh, in many different ways we saw uh, empirically but also in research that the citizen engagement practices that were developed in Ukraine, they became critical for the resilience of the society.
0: Okay, so we do have some questions here for you. So the first question is Russia's invasion of Ukraine took place a little over a year ago. To set some context, where are we now with this issue? And in your opinion, what are the most pressing challenges that are affecting crisis management?
2: The war is still ongoing for one year, as you mentioned. And this is uh, for the long time since Second World War, one of the severest conflicts and uh, aggression that we haven't experienced uh, since the Second World War. And where we stay now, it's that Russia is still aggressing and attacking Ukraine, especially its civilian infrastructure. So the war is ongoing, not so much for the land, but about uh, destroying Ukraine as such, uh, attacking its population. And sovereignty of the state. And in this context, this is really remarkable how Ukraine is still um, resilient and functioning despite all the attacks from the um, military, very strong, uh, f- uh, very strong force that Ukraine
0: has. Thank you. Um, So sort of tying into that, um, what role does political corruption play in this ongoing crisis? And what are the implications of this?
2: Political uh, corruption was uh, very important, um, or is very important to understand also historically, its role, because it was a tool that Russia used in Ukraine a lot to exercise the influence on the statehood. So in Ukraine, especially, uh, you know, the President Yanukovych, who fled to Russia after the Revolution of Dignity that uh, took place in 2013 and 14, he was one of the most blatant, blatant and the uh, most corrupt uh, presidents in Ukraine. And the revolution was actually against this regime that was, in addition to high-level corruption, developing towards authoritarianism. And why is this important to understand? Because Russia is still using corruption as an instrument in the West as well. What do I mean by that? That um, usually in a research, we associate corruption with uh, an economic problem. So we think if people enrich themselves, it's economical thing. They are rational. So that's bad, but we kind of can live with this crime. Instead what we see in the war uh, that uh, corruption can play this strategic role and undermine the very statehood and also be used as a uh, tool for geostrategic purposes to reach geostrategic purposes abroad. And this is a very different dimension of this problem because we see if Russia, for example, has influence in the west of Europe, for example. As we see with some political parties, um, they were, there were instances that Russia has funding, um, uh, supports these political parties in several states, and uh, it correlates with the voting of these political parties in favor of Russia, in the European Parliament, or also in their national parliaments. This all undermines also security because then the states, they are deciding not in favor of human rights or support of Ukraine, but they, they are corrupted. And in fact, this is where corruption is used for much more than only in economic incentives, but to really undermine security, national interests, not only in Ukraine, but in other states. And in Ukraine, there was until 2014, in fact, not necessarily to invade the country because uh, all the influence was possible to exercise through payments, through politicians who were acting in favor of Russia in Ukraine, who were bought or um, somehow influenced indirectly. Uh, The most prominent example is Medvedchuk, who founded the political party was uh, for the long time manipulating Ukrainian politics and media in favor of Russia. And he has a direct connection to uh, Putin because he's a godfather of his daughter, or vice versa. So, anyway, they have a very close uh, connection. And this is a typical example for many others that we had, um, where we see that political corruption was a critical tool and instrument to uh, pursue the geostrategic goals of Russia abroad.
0: Thank you. Um, Thank you for providing a bit of an overview of how sort of corruption has started to lead into the Russia-Ukraine crisis. And that actually leads into our next question here is, how do political organizations approach this issue of corruption as a structural issue compared to as an individual issue?
2: This is a very good question, because you are already differentiating different types of corruption and different approaches to that. This is really very important. Um, So in the war, we see a qualitative change and not only in the war, actually, this change, it started already since the revolution of dignity, as I mentioned, which uh, changed a lot in the state. But the main factor, what changed after the revolution of dignity, that so-called non-patronal actors, such as civil society or uh, Western partners of Ukraine, they got more influence on policy making in the field of anti-corruption. Especially what I mean by that, in comparison to 2014, uh, until 2014, we saw that Ukraine had also very active anti-corruption policies. So the second president, Leonid Kuchma, he already uh, introduced 1994 first anti-corruption speeches and also decrees. And since then, um, there were several strategies, laws to fight corruption, even before the international anti-corruption agenda started flourishing, even before that. In comparison to 2014, uh, in these earlier years, anti corruption was conducted by uh, institutions under the president. Which means it was instrumentalized. So, corruption was instrumentalized under the presidents before 2014, and they were using Um, all the laws against corruption, for example, for surveillance. So they were using transparency to see if there is someone funding the opposition. If that was so, then they had the instruments to um, already intervene and to uh, get someone punished for corruption legally. But that was a very selective punishment of those people in the opposition. And why it was possible to punish everyone, in fact, for corruption, because the laws, they were written in such a vague way that uh, all the gaps, they had a lot of leeway or space for different interpretations. So it means if judges were corrupt, they were able to interpret it in favor of certain decision that they need to obey. So, this is how it worked, this instrumentalized corruption. What happened in 2014, that indeed civil society got direct influence on lawmaking, and in Ukraine, there was a reanimation package of reforms. What does it mean? It was like umbrella association of different leading CSOs, civil society organizations. Among them, also those that were active in anti-corruption, they created a map of reforms and anti-corruption reforms were critical, um, one of the critical directions. And also several activists, they entered the parliament of Ukraine. And this was done in a very strategic way because they were uh, distributed among different factions, political factions, so they were able in this network provide support for different draft laws that uh, were not convenient or not useful or even dangerous for corrupt politicians. This is why it was barely possible to push for those laws earlier, but only in this sandwich effect so that there were uh, anti-corruption activists outside, inside the parliament, and together with the pressure of Western partners it was possible to push for those reforms. So that was the uh, hour, so to say, when the anti-corruption policies changed and the outcome of this were several independent anti-corruption institutions. So I call it the third phase, so to say. So the first phase was this instrumentalized anti-corruption. The second phase was society-driven anti-corruption. And now, 2020, we entered in the third phase in Ukraine, where we have uh, institutionalized anti-corruption, where not anymore civil society is producing demand for reform and draft laws for reforms, but independent anti-corruption institutions. And how they are independent, this is because they were created also with involvement of civil society and international experts who were appointing the heads of these institutions to prevent the politicization. And several of these institutions for prevention of corruption or um, detection of corruption and also high uh, anti-corruption court in Ukraine. Uh, they also have oversight bodies from the public sector who prove all the candidates applying for leading positions and also to work within, the, within of these institutions. So they are proving them uh, in terms of ethics, their lifestyle. So um, checking if these are worthy candidates and these are not corrupt people. Thank
0: you so much. Um, I had a question actually sort of tying into this relating to corruption at both the structural and on the individual level. Do you think that either one of those focuses takes precedence, whether it's more important to focus efforts to mitigate corruption at the structural level or at the individual level, or is there a way they can be intertwined?
2: On the individual level, it used to be the practice that corruption was tackled before 2014 in this phase when Uh, anti-corruption was instrumentalized. So that was convenient to write the laws in a way that individuals are blamed of corruption and they are uh, punished, whether now we see a more structural approach. In the same time, under conditions of war, well, we see that many individuals are also uh, now investigated and punished. So the rate of punishment for high-level political corruption of individuals is as high as never before and this is a really interesting phenomenon because we see that this uh, institute of uh, reputation is working it's unprecedented for ukraine because before that impunity of politicians that was enormous, norm that was um, very rare cases that uh judge uh, the, the the system of justice was able to catch some high level politician and really uh, get them into jail what is happening now that society is really um, uh, depending on the high level of trust between citizens and politicians and also a whole country needs to have a high level of trust from the foreign partners because all of, all this uh, of the support and uh, delivery of weapons. So they cannot have any damages to reputation, also due to corruption. And this is why, complementary to this structural approach to fight corruption, that we created institutions, we tackle corruption on the high political level, that we change their relations between the state and citizens, In addition to that, now we see that individuals are also punished if they engage in corruption. What is important that this punishment does not take place under the vertical of a president, but by the institutions that are uh, politically independent.
0: Thank you. Um, Moving along, uh, we did have a question regarding your work with digital media and anti-corruption. And that's, what role do you believe technology plays in political corruption? What are the most pressing technological issues in the Russia-Ukraine war?
2: Well, with regards to corruption, um, e-governance in Ukraine that evolved very quickly since 2020 It decreased the direct contact between citizens and the state. So obviously, or naturally, there are less corruption risks involved in, for example, getting some admissions, permits, documents, resolving administrative issues. So if one has to physically go in some office and to talk to a bureaucrat, and to ask for a passport, it's, of course, much easier to use corruption or some small bribe to get things done faster. If you work online, you cannot do so. So this e-governance that evolved very quickly in the past years that was critical in eliminating these corruption risks, for example, in uh, education, in all the permit uh, regulations uh, on these issues. If you are asking in general about the war, we see now a massive adoption of technologies that we have in place to the new challenges. Like, for example, um, the app that is used for for administration, for this e-governance, uh, it's called GIA, and they are developing different branches, like for example, um, different applications based already on this, um, uh, based on on DIA, uh, like E four. <laughs> and what does it mean that people they can in a real time react, make a photograph if they say if they see invaders coming? or some weapons or something and report it directly to the Ministry of Defense. This is of course this um, way that the state created already earlier the communication channel, direct communication channel between citizens and the state to get the feedback for different administrative issues. And now this is getting adjusted. And we see also the same trend with regards to anti-corruption uh, technologies that were created by civil society. Like for example, Prozoro system for uh, public procurement that is very famous, this is one of the best systems in the world that uh, allows transparent and accountable public procurement processes. This system is also getting adjusted and it's uh, the data from there is used to Um, to support allocated businesses of the internally displaced people so if the business unit is moving from one region to another this is then much easier to find connections to see the region to understand the market so the businesses do not get lost and this is also very important economically and finally the third uh, maybe the most important moment this is of course communication through digital media. With my colleague, Alexandra Kordel, we conducted a survey of local uh, government authorities in Ukraine. And the survey was conducted in September 2022. And we asked what was um, the most significant that helped you to um, manage the crisis. And they said, for example, that Uh, digital technologies for communication they were critical so 80% of respondents said that digital technologies that were in place including social media channels uh, networks they were critical and another amazing moment was that every fifth respondent every fifth community that we um, asked they uh, mentioned that Already, when the war started, they either developed or were developing some digital tools like chatbots or websites to improve communication with citizens. So, if you're imagining that the bombs are falling, and under these conditions, you are deciding or setting priorities what to do first, and you are deciding let's invest time in development of a new communication channel. It means this is really pressing. And that was done because communication from the authorities in in these networks, it uh, allowed to coordinate demand and supply for help. But it also uh, had this accommodating role for for psychological challenges, that people are less afraid that they understand what is going on, uh, under conditions of high uncertainty, they are able to uh, react better and to estimate the situation. So technologies they play a really critical role. Another point that um, I, I would mention that uh, uh, around technologies is really important to understand the risks that are connected to digital technologies and increasing digitalization also of uh, public governments. For example, not all local governments in Ukraine they had protection of uh, their data in their e-governance and they also mentioned that those who had this protection it was critical for them to react to the crisis challenges why because Russia on purpose did major cyber attacks on, um, uh, on public infrastructure and also on public data even before the invasion, a few days before the full-scale invasion in February 2022, they first launched several cyber attacks to lame all the registers, uh, all the systems, and of course, the systems are more vulnerable to these cyber attacks if everything is running in e-data and uh, in a digital way in comparison to paper. So, there is this trade-off that one needs to be really aware of how to manage uh, this digitalization to, uh, in order to protect it.
0: Perfect, thank you. Um, so, then the next question is, what role have local authorities played in dealing with this crisis in Ukraine? Have there been gaps? And if so, what roles should they be playing?
2: Uh, one needs to understand the background a little bit about the decentralization reform in Ukraine. And since 2014, there were a number of reforms that I mentioned, for example, anti-corruption reform, but decentralization reform was one of those most um, successful ones. What did this reform do? Three things. One, that administratively Ukraine was completely reshuffled. So the number of local um, community units, it was decreased by 10. So in fact, on the local level, it was a bit of, this, of centralization, not decentralization. Because uh, from 14,000 communities, 1,437 we have now in Ukraine. Why is it important that this was done? Because all the system of education, healthcare, it was made more efficient, so based on different formulas in calculation, the schools were merged. This is of course for the country a very painful process, but in the same time it increases massively the efficiency. In the same time local authorities got political powers, so this is the second aspect, and the political powers uh, with regards to education, health care, and social care. So they decided about these issues, not anymore in Kiev on the central level, but on the local level, people were able to resolve the problems they have with their um, everyday concerns about the school of their children, about the hospital they can go to or they cannot go to, about the services there, getting feedback about it. So. All this became um, very uh, reinforcing for the engagement of citizens into politics. And the third aspect was that local authorities got more money for all this, uh, which is uh, obviously very important. They got 60% of private income tax, and they got also the possibility to negotiate or to to have direct communication channel with the national level, because earlier before uh, this reform, all the local units, these communities, they had to go to the mid-level, to the oblast level, and through the oblast level, they negotiated with the national level. So you see already there was an impossible system to, to push something from the local level to the national one and vice versa while their decentralization reform changed this all. And when the war started, the society mobilized very quickly. So this mobilization was um, more or less natural, because in Ukraine, traditionally, the civil society is a very active one. But what's unique or what's important to understand, that this is not self-evident, that there are Uh, ways to channelize or mechanisms to channelize all this chaos, all this engagement, all these resources that people are uh, willing to share their time, their financial resources, their goods. They were sharing to support all the crisis. So main crisis was for example in the beginning with internally displaced people. So There were waves of thousands of people and If a village of 800 inhabitants receives more than 1000 IDPs, it's of course a crisis for them. So how to manage that? So for managing all these resources, it became critical that before that, local authorities, they learned to um, act independently from the national level. They got some kind of, uh, it's not the sovereignty, but uh, agency; they, they became a subject of um, a, a part of this uh, decision-making uh, processes, and also that society. They learned to work together with the local authorities between through different mechanisms of citizen engagement. So that was really critical to um, maintain the resilience. And in our um, in our survey we saw mind-blowing results that for example uh, 75% of local authorities they maintained their functionality two weeks after the full-scale invasion. So in two weeks they returned to their normal working practices. And it's not only that they maintained this functionality but that they were able to provide the administrative services to citizens and that they also relied on democratic decision-making. This is uh, unique because under conditions of martial law, for example, mayors, they were allowed to take decisions uh, alone, individually to speed up the processes, the reaction to the crisis. But nevertheless, they relied on the meetings of the city council or community councils and on the executive uh, committee's decisions, so collective decisions, in comparison to the uh, one-person decisions, is also a, a kind of decreasing corruption risks, increasing trust, and maintains democracy under the critical conditions of war. So uh, local authorities they were really crucial to not only support people but also to support the statehood uh, in the war.
0: Thank you. And that that ties into the next question, actually. Um, Is a country's ability to stay resilient in times of conflict partially contingent on the legitimacy and empowerment of their local public authorities?
2: In Ukraine? Yes. (laughs) For the reasons uh, that I named. According to literature, especially in new research that was conducted on the COVID crisis, we saw that decentralization can be an obstacle to react to a crisis. If, for example, this communication, the vertical communication between the local and national level is not working, so there are increasing uh, fights and uh, conflicts around the distribution of resources and this all uh, hampers the reaction to the crisis now if this communication is working then local authorities can do amazing things because they are mobilizing much more resources and in a crisis uh, that are caused by war this is a type this is like natural catastrophe as well this is a type of crisis that Uh, authorities cannot resolve alone by themselves, and also citizens, they cannot uh, do alone anything. So putting the strength together and putting all the resources together, this is a critical aspect. And um, in Ukraine, it depended really on the empowerment of local public authorities for this coordination, and also uh, for information processing from the local level to the national level, so that uh, on the national level, for example, in military terms, the Ministry of Defense can quickly understand what is the infor- what is the situation in the point A and in the point B, especially in the first days of the war that were critical, and most of the world didn't believe that Ukraine can make. Uh, longer than three days, they were staying three days, everyone was saying, yeah, okay, but three weeks, <laughs> yes, the is mean, I mean. going to fall, and neither this happened. And my hypothesis uh, is that it's due to the empowered local authorities and these um, networks that were in place, horizontal and also vertical ones, that sustained um, the state.
0: Thank you, Oksana. Um, So next, we have a couple of questions relating to the presentation that you did at the panel at Displacement Ukraine. Um, So the first question is, you positioned the importance of open governance and collaborative governance as opposite to corruption. In your opinion, is open governance sufficient to avoid corruption? Are there other factors at play that ensure government legitimacy?
2: Here again is the question about the forms of corruption we are speaking about. And open governance is critical to to resist the state capture. Or in Ukraine, it was a critical mechanism to change the system. So if we think of corruption as a system, then uh, we realize in this logic, the system won't always reproduce itself. And it's about the functions that are going on in the system. In Ukraine, the the input to the system, what shaped the system, these were oligarchs, these were private interests of the people who had a lot of economic influence, monopolies, and also a lot of political influence, and they owned media. In Ukraine, we had elections, and also people, they were deciding who is going to be in power But independently of that, in the logic of the system, anyone who was in power was susceptible to the influence of the oligarchs. Now, since the revolution of dignity, what all this open governance, uh, open government, sorry, mechanisms changed, it was that uh, people got more influence not only in the elections, but directly at the stage of decision making. So when we think in terms of representative democracy, this is quite mind-blowing because it goes farther than representative democracy. So in representative democracy, people just uh, decide, vote for someone in the elections and then they just say, okay, I don't care now. I will give my feedback if I'm satisfied with the uh, results in four or five years. In... uh, The way how open government works, the logic is of the partnership and that people permanently govern with the authorities as well. So they have influence in between. And as I described in the beginning, it was critical that this input into the system uh, about anti-corruption is coming from the uh, civil society and these non-patronal actors now your question was whether this is sufficient (laughs) and uh, whether something else should be done and indeed if we are able to tackle the system of corruption then it's also critical to tackle uh, low-level corruption and here it was e-governance that changed the situation in ukraine and also importance of the institutions to enforce justice because it's still Every system, every society has corruption, but then we speak about the ways of uh, if there is a accountability and the ways to punish it. And that was a uh, speak, uh, or oh, sorry, it was a weak spot in Ukraine, or still is that uh, the system of justice is not fully reformed. And um, this is where actually the major gaps are coming from for the maintenance of corruption or still that there uh, the corruption is widespread
0: thank you so much um, and similar to that so in your panel you discussed three pillars uh, foresight networks and flexibility of these three pillars is there one that you would rank as most crucial to be, to be prioritized or would you say that they all intertwine they really all
2: intertwine uh, I wouldn't highlight some of them as most crucial one. But I would say that maybe foresight and flexibility need more attention. Why? Because the governance in networks is not such a new issue. Although still most of the authorities, they work vertically, but still governance in networks, it's already there for a while. So for some 20 years, uh, we have research on that and we have also practices increasing. But foresight and flexibility of governments, this is something that is new also for public administration. Why it is new? Foresight, we are speaking here um, about not, not about planning. Because usually public authorities, what they do, they set a plan and they follow it for the next four or five years. The logic of foresight is that you think of different possibilities, of different crises that might come up to be prepared for them. So you are preparing for different futures and not setting only one plan. And this is a bit counterintuitive logic that public authorities as a rule are not um, prepared to fulfill or to follow. And also the flexibility, This here here we are speaking about uh, some forms of agile management. This is closely connected to this logic, not planning, but um, doing a foresight. So in this philosophy, we are speaking not about um, difficult processes of checks and balances and accountability, they are critical, they are really important, but we are speaking about the possibility as well to gain the or get the feedback in the process of policy implementation for example every year because we work with the assumption that the world due to different crises is changing so fast that we cannot allow ourselves to set the plan for four years and not to uh, do step right or step left uh, from this plan because we need to react two new situations like for example in ukraine it was critical uh, we saw this example with the budget planning national budget had um, uh, has uh, its priorities in the in the budget spendings very clearly regulated and when the martial law was uh, in place it came in place since the so when when russia invaded ukraine uh, in february the national government cut one part of the budgetary spendings. And in this cut, there were, for example, spendings for cleaning the trash or for reconstruction. Now, What local authorities faced, for example, if you think of Bucha, the city that was destroyed, cleaning streets there it had a critical security importance to not to spread the diseases and if authorities cannot do the spendings they are not able to react to this challenge or for example um, they needed to, the local authorities needed to create quickly bomb shelters for citizens. If they are not allowed to do reconstruction spendings they really cannot um do anything they cannot provide those bomb shelters and again we are in the issue of life and death in the question of life and death and it took a while to do this budgetary spending regulations more flexible that there is a leeway to react because we are living in a democratic state ukraine is a democratic state it's following procedures for the authorities, it was like we learned it in, from interviews, it was really struggle for them how to follow procedures, do not break it so that we still follow these um, checks and balances processes, but in the same time be flexible. And this is why this flexibility, this is something counterintuitive. This is um, not widespread in the modern state. And this is why I would pay more attention or highlight it to work towards this direction.
0: Thank you so much. Um, We are starting to come to the end. So we have one final question here, and that is what can Canada and the international community learn from the role of LPAs in emergency management with respect to resilience and legitimacy?
2: The main lesson learned, I think, is that um, from this insight, at the local level, what makes the country resilient, how the country works, how the country with only tens um, share of military spending in comparison uh, to Russia can resist this aggression. We can learn that uh, all the crappy realist paradigms in international relations, they are weak, and they uh, are reaching their explanatory limits. And I know that in Canada and in the U.S., this paradigm is still very much widespread, and people are still thinking in the superpowers terms, without looking into black boxes. So, thinking of a black boxes—sorry, uh, thinking of states as black boxes—and that there are only several superpowers, or uh, if we are thinking in terms of Cold War, that there is this bipolar world and that there is Russia and satellite states around. This thinking, this makes us blind towards what is going on in the country, what makes countries strong, what is the society, what are the values and how to support it. And this is why I think this perspective from Ukraine and not only on the national level where we see the president and the seat, not only the leadership, but when we see um, the practices that regular people are doing for their survival, for their resilience, what is going on at the local level, in small communities, in 500 citizen communities, these are remarkable lessons that we need to learn, that this level is important and it's critical to understand for the full picture. Only then we can resolve the challenges um, that are so difficult now to tackle.
0: That brings us to the end of our questions. So thank you so much for your time, Oksana. We appreciate you sharing your insights and your expertise on this very important and very relevant topic. Um, Do you have any final words or sentiments that you'd like to leave us with?
2: Thank you, Sophie, uh, for inviting me. Thanks for doing this important work. And I just wish that Um, Canada remains uh, in the support of Ukraine and that Ukraine wins this
1: war. Amazing. Thank you. Dr. Oksana Huss is a researcher in the BIT ACT Research Project at the University of Bologna, Italy and lecturer at the Anti-Corruption Research and Education Center in Ukraine. Thank you for tuning in with us today and we hope you join us next time on Policy Talks.